Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, hamdan kathiran, tayyiban, mubarakan fih, mubarakan alayh, kama yuhibbu rabbuna wa yarda. Jalla jalaluhu wa amma nawalu. Wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil habibil mustafa sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin amma ba'd. Qala Allahu tabaraka wa ta'ala fil Qur'an al-Majid wal Furqan al-Hamid. سبحان الذي أسرى بعبده ليلا من المسجد الحرام إلى المسجد الأقصى الذي باركنا حوله لنريه من آياتنا إنه هو السميع البصير صدق الله العظيم My dear respected brothers and sisters our friends السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Sham is in English loosely translated as the Levant and this is both spoken about in the Bible as a blessed area because Ibrahim السلام, moved to this area from uh, from Babylon from the cradle of civilization which is in current day Iraq and he was told to go to Sham so he went to Sham as well uh, Ibrahim السلام, as you know is the father of the three uh, major religions of today in Ibrahim كان أمةً قانةً لله حنيفة Ibrahim السلام, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all of the troubles that Ibrahim went through for all of the struggles that he had to undertake and for having to move from his own area for him to go and do what he did in other places Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him uh, a huge amounts of reward uh, his rewards a number of different ways he is a man who's remembered and he's revered by the three major religions of today both by the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims, the forefather of them all. In fact, after Ibrahim السلام, uh, all the prophets came from his descendants, from the Israelites and then Muhammad wasallam. So Ibrahim السلام's sons, Ismail السلام, and Ishaq السلام. he had other sons as well, at least one other son. But these are the two famous ones. And Ishaq, from Ishaq السلام, came, as you know, Ya'qub Ya'qub other name, who knows Ya'qub other name? Israel, right? So, Harrama Israelu ala nafsi, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about in the Quran. Israel is actually the name of Ya'qub Israel, Israfil, Jabrail, Mikail, all of these names are like we say in, uh, in Arabic, Abdullah, Abdurrahman, and so on and so forth, servants of Allah. This is, in, this is in Hebrew. So, Israel, Yaqub alayhi salam. Now, as you know, Yaqub alayhi salam had 12 children. And one of them was Yusuf alayhi salam, bin Yamin, Yahuda, and a number of others, Le, uh, uh, Levi and others. And then that's where, so Musa alayhi salam comes from one of these sons. Uh, Dawud alayhi salam comes from one of these sons. And so on and so forth. But all the prophets after Ibrahim alayhi salam came from his generation, from his progeny. Likewise, all the major books that we know of today, the Torah, Zabur, the Injil, and the Quran, again, they are all from uh, prophets, uh, messengers rather, uh, from the descendants of Ibrahim salam. So this is an amazing area, this place called Sham. It's a place where there were many, many prophets. Uh, many prophets are buried there. Many prophets live there. And clearly, that's why there is the commotion there that is, there is today because the descendants of these prophets they vie with each other now what's very interesting for those who've been to Jerusalem once you go beyond Jerusalem and you go to Beitul Laham or Bethlehem Bethlehem is very interesting because when you get to Bethlehem there are where they claim it to be the place of the birth of Isa alayhi salam there are approximately four churches there that are literally next to each other some without walls in between. So it's like they've all grabbed areas right next to it. It's one of the highly com uh, competed and vied for areas in the world where sometimes they will have fights with broomsticks as well you know, for who gets the right to clean that particular place. So there's four different denominations minimum and probably more uh, that vie for that particular area. It was very interesting because when I traveled to Baytul Laham and we went to visit this place uh, we got inside and there was a, a tour guide, an Arab tour guide. A, a lot of people in Beit al are Muslim. It's in the West Bank. 
So we'd actually taken public transport from Jerusalem. One of the imams there, he said, if you want to see the Baytul Laham to Hebron, to Al-Khalil, then why don't you go by public transport, travel the way the locals do. So we got on a local bus. Yeah, we had a, a guide with us who was half blind, an older man with a stick. And we had to go through the check post and everything. Like we thought, let's experience that. So when he got to Baytul Laham, he didn't come with us, but we, I was with my family, so we went into the place and went to... Uh, as we were looking around, this particular guide, he finished what he was... Uh, his, his guide, uh, he, was, he was guiding some, another group of people, I'm not sure from what country, but when he finished and he turned around to us, Assalamu alaikum, so he's, he was a Muslim. So he's earning his living doing some guiding tours there. And then he started giving us a tour. He says, don't worry about it. I'm a Muslim. I'm just going to tell you guys a few. So he gave his normal spiel of what is where and this is this and this is the manger and this is what happened. And you know, the, the normal guidance spiel. And then suddenly he does a 360 degree turn. He looks around. There's nobody looking. And he says, everything that I told you is just the story that I tell. My real opinion about where Isa was born is at a, about 15 miles or something from this place or a few miles, few miles, I can't remember exactly the number of miles he mentioned because as, as it says in the Quran, Isa uh, was born, uh, Maryam gave birth to him at the bank of a river and this was down in a cave where this church is uh, of the holy, is that the holy sepulcher? No, that's, that's in Jerusalem. This uh, where, where they say is the, the, the birth, you, they take you down into a uh, into like a cave and they say that this is where it's made and they have like the nativity scene there all displayed and everything so he says i think it's a few miles from here at the bank of this uh, river as it mentions in the quran anyway so you had isa alayhi salam that you had many things in this area just to get an idea according to the scholars as to what is sham in general now sham in general is quite a bit of an area it's um, part of egypt the Sinai in particular. That's where Musa salam is buried today. Musa salam asked to be buried close to Sham, close to Jerusalem rather. But he was. Then you have uh, much of Jordan, if not all of Jordan, and that probably encroaches a bit into uh, parts of nor uh, northwest of uh, Saudi Arabia as well. And then you have a lot of Syria uh, as part of that. And then of course Lebanon, Philistine and current day Israel where that takes place, so all of that. However, there are prominent locations within that area. So the whole place can be considered Sham in general. In fact, I read recently that uh, it extends all the way to Medina Munawwara, Medina being very specific though. But that's not the generally understood opinion. But that is Mullah Ali Al-Qari's mentioned that as well. But we're not, we don't need to take it that far. Medina Munawwara, Makkah Mukarram has its own virtue anyway. So. Anyway, so what you then have is then you have these specific areas which the Prophet spoke particularly about uh, in the Sham area in general. So one is you have obviously Masjid Al-Aqsa, Jerusalem. Now what's very interesting in the time of Rasulullah they generally referred to, to it as Iliyah. That's where they went, Iliyah. That's, that's what was, it was referred to. Not as uh, not generally as Masjid Al-Aqsa, Masjid Al-Aqsa was there, but not generally as Jerusalem or Urshalim, Yurshalim. It's there's been it's gone through quite a few. Uh, uh, the, the name has gone through quite a few evolutions to get to where it is, or as we understand it today. Anyway, then so so then there's uh, there is Jerusalem, then there is Damascus, right now. In general, in the Arab world, if you talk about Sham in particular, they refer to Damascus as Sham. Probably why? Uh, probably is because Damascus has been spoken about. There are events that are going to occur there. So they, it holds something for the future. Jerusalem has its own fadail and fadila and virtues anyway. So people seem to say Damascus is Sham, even though a lot of the surrounding area is also Sham. Do you understand? But when you go there, where are you going to? I'm going to Sham. Sham means Damascus in that case. But again, this is just like taking a general name and applying it to a specific place because of certain virtues that are in that area. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mention some of the general virtues of Sham first, then some specific virtues of Masjid Al-Aqsa, maybe a few about, uh, about Damascus itself as well. 
One thing about Damascus and Sham is that most of its significance, I don't want to say most of its significance, but a lot of its significance is about, uh, is to do with the end of time. More to do with the end of time than the current situation. Although the Prophet ﷺ on a number of occasions, as you'll see in the hadith that I mentioned, when somebody asked him that if I had to leave Medina Munawwara, or if I was to be uh, evicted from Medina, forced to leave Medina, where should I go? He said, Sham. So, Sham in general was a nice resort, a nice place to go to. It was a nice place to go to. Uh, in that sense, it was a virtuous place to go to in general like that. However, Sham will take on greater and greater significance towards the end of time because that is where, as the famous hadith mentions, Isa is going to descend. So, let us look at Sham in, in general first. The first and foremost is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Isra in the beginning, Subhanallah asra bi abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-haram ila al-masjid al-aqsa alladhi barakna hawlahu linuriyahu min ayatina innahu huwa as-sami'u al-basir. Glorified, purified uh, is he who took his servant by night. Asra yusri means to take somebody by night somewhere. Laylan min al-masjid al-haram from Masjid al-haram to Masjid al-aqsa. It, this is, these two masjids are named in the Qur'an. Masjid al-Aqsa, Masjid al-Haram. Masjid al-Quba is also referred to as Masjid in the Qur'an, but not as Masjid Quba. Right? It says, La masjidun ussisa ala taqwa. The masjid which was established on the basis of God-fearingness and piety. But Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Aqsa is, is mentioned by name. Now, an interesting story about this. Uh, one of my days as Imam in California, there was this new Muslim that came and, you know, there's non-Muslims, they know about Masjid Laksa because th there's issues there. So he comes and he says, you guys are always saying that Masjid Aqsa is mentioned in the Quran. I don't find it anywhere in the Quran. So that surprised me. That statement surprised me. I said, what do you mean you don't find it in the Quran? He says, yeah, I've read the whole Quran. There's no, it's not there. And it's surprising. A lot of people who are interested in Islam, they will actually read the Quran with a lot of meaning and thought. More than some people, many of us who are born Muslims. Uh, so then I said, that's not true. I, I've memorized the Quran. It says, Subhanallah, asra bi abdihi layna min masjid al-haram, masjid al-aqsa. Now clearly this guy, this person, this individual wasn't looking at the Arabic. He was reading a translation. I said, look, where, where are you reading this? Which translation? So he grabbed Abdullah Yusuf Ali's translation, which is generally a decent translation for the most part. It's got some issues. But... So he brought it along and yes, we opened it up. And this is the first time I'm looking at this translation. So he says, glorified, uh, I'm going to paraphrase uh, with the specific words uh, um, uh, for the masjid. He says, glorified is he who took his servant by night from, this, uh, from, the, sanctify, uh, from the sacred mosque to the, to the furthest mosque. So now, when somebody reads the furthest mosque, it's a furthest mosque, what does that mean? We take it as Masjid al-Aqsa, we take it literally like this, you know, Masjid al-Aqsa, but they were translating it as the furthest mosque. And it makes sense, it's the furthest mosque from Makkah, from Medina, Munawwara. It was considered a distance. It's about what, maybe about a 20-hour car drive today. So, I explained to him that you're actually reading a translation of Masjid al-Aqsa, which is important for us to know because it means the distant mosque. It, everything is just named, relatively speaking, the distant mosque. Al-Quds, Al-Bayt Al-Muqaddas. Quds just means uh, the divine, <coughs> sacred, sanctified location. That's where all of these words come from, because of the sanctuary. So it's got so many different names. So, Subhanallah, Asra bi Abdihi Layla min al Masjid al Haram ila al Masjid al Aqsa alladhi barakna hawlaha. Around which, surrounding which, in the environs of which we blessed. There's blessing in that area. Linuriyahu min ayatina, so we could show him our signs. Because he is the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most seeing and hearing. Now, According to some of the scholars, they said that the Prophet ﷺ was taken by night from Masjid al-Haram by the angel with the Burak, etc. to Masjid al-Aqsa. And all of this happened within a portion of the night and he came back before Fajr. 
And he was also taken from Masjid Al-Aqsa up to the heavens, to the seventh heaven and beyond for the ascension. Why was he taken on this journey in this direction with this route, rather than from Masjid Al-Haram up to the heavens, end of story. So according to some, they say that the opening, the door of the heavens is above Masjid Al-Aqsa, above that area. That, that is where the door to the heavens is up. Now, I don't know if the people who travel in space, if they want to get some idea about this and see if it's any easier to fly up from there or whatever, I don't know, right? Then Cape Canaveral or um, Texas or wherever it is that they go from. Wallahu alam. But the Prophet wasallam, that's where he went from. Now, the interesting story, as most of you will know, is that when he got there, on the way, he stopped in a number of different places where he met Musa salam on one occasion. Then he met with all of the prophets in Masjid Al-Aqsa. When you go to Masjid Al-Aqsa today, if you're facing Masjid Al-Aqsa with the Qubbat Al-Sakhra behind you, then on the right of that is uh, the, the Maghariba Gate, which is the, the western gate of the Gate of the Moroccans, or however you want to call North Africans. And there is uh, the Masjid Al-Buraq. The Masjid Al-Buraq, you have to go down there and they show you that there is a link a metal iron ring that is uh, fixed to the wall and they say that this is where the Prophet ﷺ tied his horse. One of the people who took us there says, I mean, this is difficult to ascertain whether that is really where he tied his horse or not. right? Because that was many, many years ago. Anybody could have put a ring there. But the Prophet ﷺ tied his horse in that area somewhere. Also, Masjid Al-Aqsa, if you've seen a lot of the pictures of it, the, the top part is very new. You have to, They only open the bottom part at certain times, that's where the original Masjid al-Aqsa, that's where the, the part is. Okay, so the first is that Allah subhanahu, it's a place around which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed a lot of blessing. A lot of the blessings and truly it is a very blessed area. It's one of the, when I traveled from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, it's one of the most, I mean, just from aesthetic beauty, the olive trees, the rolling mountains and hills, all of that is a very very blessed place Zaytun is again as you as you know mentioned in the Quran and I've eaten some of the best figs in Damascus right during season some of the best figs I've eaten in Damascus so you've got the figs and you've got the Zaytun in that particular area so there's a lot of barakah and a lot of blessing in that area a lot of prophets have come for example in Europe we've had no prophet that's why people have gone to Immanuel Kant and other people that's basically who they look for enlightenment. In fact, if there's a prophet that has been imported, it's been Jesus from the Middle East down to here. I remember once when The Passion of Christ, the movie came out. Uh, Mel Gibson did a movie on The Passion of Christ and it raised a, a lot of controversy because of the way he depicted uh, certain other um, religions and so on in there. So once we had a discussion about that, it was, this was an American interfaith discussion. So I'm sitting there with the, the, the priests and so on and they started getting grilled about there were there were some Afri, uh, African Americans uh, that were Christian and they started this question was Jesus black why is Jesus shown to be white in all of the depictions why wasn't he black so there's this whole racial undertones that they were trying to pull out of this so the the Christian priests they were in really in a difficult position to try to answer this because they had to answer it in a politically sensitive way, in a diplomatic way, keep the calm because the whole program was about interfaith harmony and they were having a hard time. So then that's when I chipped in. I said, look, let me, let me try to sort this out. According to our traditions, according to the hadith, the traditions of the Muslims, Isa has been described as being of wheatish complexion. Right? as being of wheatish complexion and of slightly dark hair, which looks Middle Eastern. So it's neither white nor black, right? It's somewhere in between. So we managed to diffuse that issue there. Right? The virtues of Masjid Laksa, the virtues of Sham, uh, numerous people have written about this. Now, whenever you see that people write about a particular area, then it means there's something significant about that area. So for example, for those who understand these names, Hafiz ibn Asakir, who died in about 571 Hijri, he wrote about the virtues of Sham. There's uh, Abu al-Hassan al-Rabi'i, ibn, Hafiz ibn Taymiyyah, 
uh, Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali and many others, they wrote about Sham. There's many books that you can buy about the Fadila of Sham, the people who are buried there. So just to put us in perspective, one, we've got the historical Sham uh, in terms of Masjid al-Aqsa and the surrounding areas and who came there as prophets. That's where a lot of this begins. Masjid al-Aqsa uh, was built just some years after, uh, uh, after the Kaaba, right? Uh, after the Kaaba, many, many, many <coughs> centuries ago. Many, many centuries ago. So it starts obviously from there, that masjid being there. However, then we have all of the prophets that were in that area. Ya'qub alayhi salam, when you go to Al-Khalil, you've got uh, Ya'qub alayhi salam, Yusuf alayhi salam, Ishaq alayhi salam, their wives, many of their wives, Ibrahim alayhi salam. And you've got certain other prophets that are purported to have been buried there as well. Wallahu alam. Then the other thing is, then you look at in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Prophet encouraged it a lot. That's why the first place that uh, the Darul Khilafah of the Muslimin moved to, right? Although it was in, you could say Kufa with Ali that, that was a bad experience, right? That was a bad experience in for those who know the history of it with Ali radiallahu anhu when he was in, uh, invited by the people of Kufa and so on. So although Kufa and Basra, you could say, had way more development in terms of uh, in terms of the Islamic sciences because after Medina Munawwara, you could say that Kufa and Basra, Iraq, had probably the highest level of development in terms of the Islamic sciences, even grammar, Arabic grammar, uh, and, and a lot of the Aqidah and so on and so forth. Then you get Damascus and Egypt and so on like that, but really Iraq holds the big... But when it comes to rule, it's mainly Muawiyah uh, and the Umayyads because that was the stronghold. That was a kind of a different area altogether. For example, Umar anhu during his time would not allow uh, the Sahaba and the Tabi'in. He would frown upon people using finery. Any person in, during his reign, during his rule in the different areas of Muslim lands which gone into Iraq and, uh, and Persia uh, or Iraq, uh, in the, which was originally under the Persians and the Roman lands, he would really not want them to dress in fineries and so on. But when it came to Muawiyah, it was fine in Damascus because people only respected you if you were like that because they had a lot of Roman influence in that area. So after all of the problems within, uh, you know, with Ali radiallahu anhu, Muawiyah radiallahu and so on and so forth, and then Hassan radiallahu anhu passed over the Khilafah to Muawiyah radiallahu anhu, they established the Khilafah as such, the Umayyad Khilafah and its dynasty, it ran in Damascus. So that was, you can say, after Medina Munawwara, that was the place of the rule for the Muslims around the world for uh, a significant uh, number of years, from Muawiyah and then Yazid, and then Muawiyah, and then uh, uh, it was uh, Marwan, and then Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, and then his children, and then when, until they finished. Then the Abbasids, they shifted it to Baghdad. Baghdad was a brand new city. Baghdad did not exist in the time of the Sahaba. Baghdad was only, uh, uh, was only established afterwards. Right? Uh, again, that's Basra and Kufa were, were not taken. Baghdad, brand new city established by Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. Anyway, so you then have the other thing you have about Damascus is that because it's a place the Prophet ﷺ had spoken about so much, that's why many of the Sahaba are buried there. In fact, not just Sahaba in general, but some of the greatest of the Sahaba and some of the, if you, if you want to find the family of the Prophet ﷺ buried anywhere, you'll find them in Medina Munawwara, as soon as you get into the graveyard in front of you, and then you'll find them in Sham. You've got a number of the close family members of Rasulullah buried, Sayyidina Zainab and others who are buried in Jerusalem, uh, in, sorry, in, in, uh, in Damascus. Uh, Bilal radiallahu anhu is, uh, is there as well. In fact, Bilal radiallahu anhu did not want to, it says in a hadith, he did not want to come back to Medina Munawwara because he just felt so homesick. Uh, he, he felt so distant from the Prophet because the Prophet had gone, he would not want to come back. Then there is a narration that mentions that he saw the Prophet ﷺ once in his dream and the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Ma al jafa ya Bilal? What is, why are you being estranged from me? Why don't you come to Medina Munawwara? So then as soon as he had that dream, it says that he just got up and took off. He just went on and on and on and went into Medina Munawwara. But he was in Damascus, he went to Medina Munawwara and the story is interesting that when he got there, Everybody discovered Bilal anhu is here, but he'd refused to give adhan. 
as he used to give in the time of Rasulullah So then they told Hassan and Hussein to try to encourage him. And he couldn't refuse them. So then he started giving his adhan. And wallahu alam, but it says that women ran out of their houses because it brought back memories of the time of Rasulullah What is going on here? Is it all back, you know? So you have numerous Sahaba and especially family of Rasulullah buried in Damascus. That's another very interesting. So you can tell that them being there, it was a sanctuary at the time. It was a sanctuary at the time. Zayd ibn Thabit al-Ansari, the famous Sahabi, he relates that I heard Rasulullah saying, Ya Tuba lisham, Ya Tuba lisham, Ya Tuba lisham. Which means, he's saying, the Prophet is saying, glad tidings for Sham, glad tidings for Sham, glad tidings for Sham. So they said, Ya Rasulullah, what is the reason for this? Why is there glad tidings for this? He replied, because the angels of Allah have spread their wings upon Sham. Now, I know that at this time, the turmoil that Sham is going through, not just Sham, but the other place where the Prophet made dua for, which we're going to be looking at right now in the next hadith. And subhanAllah, the people from these two areas where the Prophet speaks about, the next hadith is from Abdullah ibn Umar anhu. He says that Rasulullah said, Allahumma barik lana fi shamina, wa barik lana fi yamanina, qalu wa fi najdina, qala Allahumma barik lana fi shamina, wa barik lana fi yamanina, qalu wa fi najdina, qala hunaka az-zalazil wal fitan, wa biha, aw minha, yakhruju qarnu shaytan. So now the Prophet is in front of um, his congregation, and he starts making this dua, he says, Oh Allah, bless us in our Sham. Oh Allah, bless us in our Yemen. So not only does he say bless Yemen and bless Sham, but he says bless us in our Yemen, in our Sham. He really personalized it. Really personalized it. The Prophet ﷺ, that's probably in the direction that he went. It's probably the furthest, furthest direction he went to, in fact, when he was younger. With his, father, with his uh, uncle as a, trades, as a tradesman, it was towards Sham that he went and then eventually he came back. But that's, the Prophet didn't go beyond that to any other area. So it's kind of interesting. He says, Oh Allah, bless us in our Sham, bless us in our Yemen. So there must have been some Najdi sitting there. There's an area called Najd. Najd is the eastern border of Arabia. If you look at Medina Munawwara and Makkah Mukarrama, right? And Medina Munawwara, then on the east of that towards Iraq is called Najd. It's a province, it's a major area province of, uh, towards Riyadh, right, that area. Um, it's a major province of uh, the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia today. So then there must have been people from there, and the Prophet said, uh, you know, then they said, They're trying to, it's like, okay, what about London? What about Bedford? Right. So, our najd as well, Ya Rasulullah. But the Prophet repeated the same dua. Oh Allah, bless us in our Sham, bless us in our Yemen. Again they asked, and in our najd? If only. But the Prophet said, no, that is where there's going to be earthquakes, fitna, trials, tribulations, challenges will come about from that area. And from there also, the, the horn of shaitan will emerge. Now, the people who live in that area, they generally understand these ahadith to mean that direction of Iraq. Because that was the closest of the Arabian Peninsula in the direction of Iraq, where there's going to be lots of issues coming from that side. So they try to say, oh, it's the direction he's speaking about, that there's going to be issues coming from that direction. He's not speaking in particular about Najd itself. While a lot of people who don't like Najdis, they say that this is specifically speaking about Najd itself. People of Najd are, in general, the people of Najd, although they kind of are in the ruling seat right now in Saudi Arabia, and many of the Imams of Haram, etc., they are Najdis. And they are known to be a bit, you can say, harsh in nature. They're known to be a bit harsh in nature in general anyway. right? So... Of course, they're all Muslimin right now, in that sense. But without going into that polemics, because our discussion is on Sham, let's keep to Sham, let's forget Najd right now.
But that again tells you, and subhanAllah, Yemen and Sham, the people of there are very soft-hearted, generally speaking. The people of Yemen and Sham, just like Medina Munawwara. Very soft-hearted people. Very easy to deal with. This businessmen, yes. Right. Yemenis uh, uh, and Syrians are known to be business people, no doubt about that. And subhanAllah, Masjid al-Aqsa, I've not seen anybody more proud than the people of, Masjid, of Jerusalem. Though they're in all the difficulty that they're in, but that trip that I had there, they hold their head high. They still talk about aspects like hospitality and so on and so forth. For example, the Imam, when I told him that there was a particular individual who wanted to charge us for taking us around or something, he was really upset. He said, this is not how our people should be. You are a guest and we should be doing all of this for you for free. Of course, people need to make money. And unfortunately, even Medina Munawar, Makkah Mukarram has been big money making now. The hospitality, unfortunately, is very hard to find as it used to be, where they would, you would be expected to, you know, be really helped along and so on and so forth. But the people of Damascus, of Jerusalem, even today, subhanAllah, they are very independent, very proud. That's why they've survived. A lot of the people, that's why they've survived these years of incursion. They haven't given up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created them, given them a lot of grit, a lot of zeal. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase them in that regard. Now, the third hadith I'm going to relate is from Abu Dharr radiallahu an. He says that, I was once in, Madi, uh, in Masjid al-Nabawi. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came. I was sleeping. I'd fallen asleep in the masjid. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came and he nudged me with his foot. And he said, do I see you sleeping here? You're sleeping in the masjid. So I said, Ya Rasulullah, my eyes overcame me. I couldn't help it. I fell asleep. What would you do? He asked me a sudden question. He said, What would you do if you were, uh, if you were, if you were forced to leave, leave Medina Munawwara? If you were forced to leave the city, where would you go? So look, it, for him to give a straightforward answer so quickly, he says, Atisham, Al Ard al Muqaddasa, Al Mubaraka. Clearly, they had heard about Sham. Sham was spoken about. Sham, its merits, and so on and so forth, had been discussed and was well known. So immediately the Sahabi said, I will go to Sham, the blessed and the, 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 the holy land of Sham. I will go there. Then the Prophet carried on. He says, What would happen if you were also forced to leave that area? Now he had no answer. He, then he said, Ya Rasulullah, what should I do? Should I start fighting with my sword? Like, will it be so bad then I'll just have to fight with my sword? The Prophet said, Shouldn't I tell you something that is better than that? Than what you would have to do? <coughs> and what you think you would have to do? Something that is closer to guidance. Very interesting hadith. It says, you will just listen, you will obey, and you will just be driven wherever you're driven. It's better to do that than to cause the fitna. Right? Now, I don't want to go into the whole discussion of uprisings and rebellions and so on, because we're here talking about the fadail of these people. Right? So that's a whole different subject. But in this particular hadith, the Prophet is saying, take it easy. You, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to deal with uh, on a physical level. Just do what you have to do at the time and just carry on. This is what the Prophet ﷺ said. He called it Aqrab Arushta in that case. Because rebellion is never, is hardly ever a good thing, except in very specific circumstances. And what's interesting is that this is Abu Dharr radiallahu an. Abu Dharr radiallahu an was a man of um, a different temperament, very particular about taking the words black and white from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So then what he did was he did live, leave Medina Munawwara finally. After the Prophet passed away, he left Medina Munawwara for the deserts of Sham and he stayed there during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq for two years and some months. For Umar for over 10 years, he stayed there. So that's 12, 13 years. It was during the Khilafah of Uthman that when he was in Damascus, he then became saddened by the increase of the Muslims luxury and comfort and everything like that and he felt all of this was wrong he saw the change and he felt all of this was wrong so then 
Uthman invited him back to Medina Munawwara because Uthman was in Medina Munawwara. When he got there, he was equally critical of the people. Now people had changed. It wasn't, it wasn't only Sahaba anymore. And now people were a bit more indulgent than they were in the time of Rasulullah So he started having issues with this. So Uthman then gave him the instruction to go to a small village close to Medina Munawwara called Rabada. That you move to Rabada where you can stay alone with your wife and maybe a servant or something like this and just spend the rest of your life because he discovered that his temperament was such that if he stayed in Medina Munawwara, he'd be giving fatwas about what he saw around him. And that's where he eventually stayed uh, in his asceticism. That's where he stayed finally. Abu, the next hadith is from Abu Umama radiallahu an. He says that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Safwatullahi min ardihi asham. Wa fiha safwatuhu min khalqi wa ibadih. Wa la tadkhulanna al jannata min ummati thullatun la hisaba alayhim wa la adhab. These are the ahadith that the Sahaba had heard. And that's why they would say, if I'm going to leave here, that's where I'm going. Now, everybody's got some idea of where they would go if they had to leave. Well, I hope so. Because that's the nature of the world. You should know where you need to go. Right? Whether that's back to Silet, right? or India or Gujarat or wherever it is. Right? But you have to have an idea. Nothing's guaranteed in this world. May Allah give us stability, but nothing is guaranteed in this world. This is the Sahaba. Now it's these hadiths that they're relating. There's a hadith related by Imam Tabarani from Abu Umama radiallahu anhu. He says that Rasulullah said, The chosen land of Allah is Sham. Now that doesn't put it over Medina Munawwara. Muhammad sallallahu is the greatest of the prophets. But you have Ibrahim who has a lot of significance. Yusuf has a lot of significance. Musa al-Rusul. So each one has his own merits. But clearly, Medina Munawwara is superior. Makkah Mukarramah is the superior. You know, Sham has its own benefits as well, though. So that's why he said, Allah, the Prophet said, The chosen land of Allah is Sham. And in it are his chosen people and servants. A group from my nation will certainly enter paradise without any reckoning or punishment. And to be honest, Sham was that one place where there was a lot of light. I remember still entering. Uh, before Fajr, midnight, uh, it was like a flight about three o'clock, four o'clock. We got out and there was an amazing serenity there when I went there. I went there in 1998. 98. Amazing serenity. Noor. I've been to other Muslim cities. There's another city, I won't take its name. Probably more mosques and a greater city with more knowledge in the current times than Damascus. They say it's a city of a thousand minarets, no doubt. There are masjids next to each other in that city. If you want to study masajid and architecture, and you want to study different dynasties, that's the city to go to. Literally one masjid after the other in one street, avenue of masajid. But I didn't feel the same thing down there that you feel in Sham, that you felt in Damascus. I haven't been to Yemen, so I can't speak about Yemen. From the people that tell me they've been to Hadramaut, etc., that's, uh, that's another great place. But... All of these places are great, but the Sham is amazing. It was amazing. A lot of light there. And the beautiful thing in that time was that there were no McDonald's. There was no Coca-Cola. There was no mobile phones there at the time. The only Coke or any of these things that you could actually buy was smuggled in from Beirut, from, from Lebanon. There were only small corners. People would quickly put up a little table and start selling these things. Otherwise, it was a very simple, no conglomerates, very simple, simple solution. And the best thing about the place was that you could access so many scholars. Nearly every masjid was full of, you know, some dars or the other, some class or the other. Uh, Sheikh Wahba here, Sheikh Ramadan al-Buti here, Sheikh, you know, so-and-so here. And in this place, there's dars every day of the week. You have access to go to these durus. You have to go to these, these scholars. So we used to go to Sheikh Adib Kallas, uh, which was, he used to live in a place called Muhajireen, on the top of a, a mountain. You'd literally have to, they, they made these steps, I don't know, about 100, 200 steps to climb up, and you'd be out of breath by the time you get there. And sometimes you used to go by taxi, but you had to pick the right taxi to go there, 
because most of the cars in Damascus at the time were very old, like 30 years old or 40 years old. So some of them would just refuse because they couldn't get up that hill. Right? So you'd have to get the right taxi to go up there or walk up. And you go to his house, you take your book with you, and there's already 10, 15 other people who are sitting there, and everybody has turns. Okay, then he teaches, you know, you read your book to him for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then you put your book away, and then somebody else reads theirs. So everybody's doing their individual dars as such. Very beautiful, just beautiful. And then the other place that I studied was in the great Umayyad Mosque itself. Now, another thing about Sham is that the Prophet says that Isa will descend in Damascus on the eastern white minaret of the great mosque of Damascus. In the time when he said this, there was no mosque in Damascus. Damascus hadn't been conquered, it was under the Romans. But the Prophet is saying that a time will come when Isa will descend there. So, you know, clear hadith about it. So then what you have is this Walid ibn Abdul Malik, the, the Umayyads, when they established, this is when he constructed this great mosque. Um, obviously, it's gone through a lot of iterations since then, but he constructed this great mosque, and there is that white minaret which is on that eastern minaret of it. Now the most interesting thing is that I used to study on the opposite side, on the, this side. Uh, this is where Sheikh uh, Abdul Razak al-Halabi rahimahullah used to be. So I used to read my Quran to him and he used to teach outside of there. Ghazali stayed in this masjid for quite, quite some time. He stayed here. So again, you know, this tells you another thing about Sham. Ghazali was in, Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi was, was in Baghdad. Baghdad's brand new city. Right? It's a brand new city uh, for, uh, from the time of the Sahaba, from after the time of the Sahaba. So Imam Ghazali leaves Baghdad. He's originally from Tus, which is by Mashhad in Iran, northwest Iran, Nishapur in that area. He is the biggest scholar, one, considered one of the biggest scholars of the Muslim world of the time. So he is in Baghdad. But then after that, he gives all of that up for about 10 to 11 years. He decides to just go in the path of Allah just seeking Allah and leaving everybody. So where does he go? He goes to Masjid Al-Aqsa, he goes and stays in Damascus, and he goes to the Haramain. That's the four places he goes to. Now, as this is for a Muslim, you can just understand where people would want to go to if they wanted some sanctuary. Unfortunately, Makkah, Mukarram, Madinah, Munawwara today is difficult without a visa, visa restrictions. And of course, if it was open, then it would be overcrowded. Right? Because now with the ease of travel, everybody would be there and just stay there the whole year. Why, why, why leave? You know? So that's why they do what they do. Jerusalem, very expensive, but possible to be there. Damascus, although Damascus itself is still kind of intact, the central intact. Unfortunately, the surroundings, the other areas, it's, it's a tough place to be. However, it's more talking about the end of times that this is where the Muslims will, will eventually revert to. Right? In fact, it says that Medina Munawwara will become desolate. There's hadith to that effect. Medina Munawwara will become desolate. How will it be, the Prophet ﷺ said, when certain things like that will happen in Medina Munawwara and they were shocked. So, end of times is all Jerusalem and that area. That's where Isa will kill Dajjal. As well. So that place is called Babul Lud, which is outside of, outside of Jerusalem. Because it's between Damascus and Jerusalem where a lot of this discussion of the end of times takes place. It says that when Isa will descend onto this minaret and he'll come down, it's, it's a possibility that here Mahdi radiallahu anhu would have gotten everybody together because the Christians will be waiting. The Jews will be waiting and the Muslims will be waiting. And when Isa salam comes down, he will say what he has to say. And the people will start following him, those who want to follow him. Others will start opposing him. So many of the Christians will become Muslim at that time. Because it says that he will break the cross, kill the swine and eliminate the jizya. And then they will be either for or against in that sense. Then it says he will go after the Dajjal. Uh, towards Jerusalem. So it's just outside Jerusalem where you have Ben Gurion International Airport by Lud. That's where it says in Lud, that's where he'll kill him.
and wallahu alam there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation you can do as to the flight that dajjal will be taking and so on and so forth but the main point of our discussion is damascus and syria sorry damascus syria and jerusalem these are the two places where a lot of this is happening then even afterwards afterwards or most of the attention is in that area with isa alayhi when the muslims will be with isa alayhi when yajuj and majuj will come they will just totally destroy everything and the people with with isa and he will go to uh, the mount there in sham in general and that's where he will make his dua so a lot of the discussion of the end of times is in that area now i know there's a lot of persecution taking place right now so i'm just going to mention a few more hadith i'll mention if, uh, then i'll move on to inshallah jerusalem in particular there's another hadith i'm going to mention from abdullah ibn hawala al-azdi related by Imam Tabarani again. He says that, O Prophet of Allah, choose for me a place where I should be for, you know, where I could be if I was to leave Medina Munawwara. But then he did say, if I were to know that you would remain, I would not have chosen any place. So once you're not here, then where should I go? So he said, the Prophet sallallahu uh, he said, go to Sham. The Prophet told him, go to Sham. So it looks like he didn't really register that properly and didn't really take that as a you know so when the Prophet saw his indifference towards it he said do you know what Allah says about Sham verily Allah says O Sham you are my chosen land and I shall make the best of my servants enter you so that's why the people who are there who are undergoing all of the turmoil and the, and the destruction and everything like that there are a number of other things about Sham, like that, talking about the best of people who are in Sham. For example, I'll mention another hadith. Shaddad ibn Aws. Now, Shaddad ibn Aws, if you go to, Jer uh, to Jerusalem, you'll actually visit his grave. Because his grave is very, very prominent there. Shaddad ibn Aws. Why? Again, where does this come from? Shaddad ibn Aws was, it seems like he was feeling some pressure from something. So he didn't seem to be too well. And he seems to be in some kind of struggle. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, What's wrong, O Shaddad? He said, Daqad bi ad dunya. The world has closed on me, it's constrained on me. So the Prophet ﷺ said, The world has not closed in on you. Verily, we got a lot to hope for. He says, Verily, Sham will be conquered. And Al Quds. So this was a prophecy that was given at the time. Sham will be con conquered and Al-Quds will be conquered and you and your sons will be Imams there, if Allah wills. You and your sons will be Imams there, if Allah wills. So now what interesting is that Shaddad ibn Aws, he played a leading role in the conquest of Sham and Quds. And he passed away in 58 Hijri at the age of 75 and he is buried there in the Muslim graveyard neighboring Masjid Laksa. It's there, I think I even have a picture of this. The other companion, very famous, who's buried there as well is Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhu. The final hadith I'm going to mention about Sham is a hadith that's related by Imam Ahmad. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu says that I heard Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam saying al-abdalu yakunun bi-sham, wahum arba'oon rajulan. Kullama mata rajulun abda Allahu makanahu rajulan, fiyasqi bihim al-ghayth, wa'insuru bihim al-ladha. Ali ibn Abi Talib says that I heard the messenger of Allah saying that the abdal will be in Sham. They are 40 men. Whenever one of them passes away, Allah replaces him with another man. It is through their invocations that water will come through, uh, will, will come through rain, enemies will be defeated and punishment will be withheld from the people of Sham. The word abdal means substitutes. Now, there's numerous opinions about what exactly this refers to, but most scholars, most hadith scholars as well, have confirmed the existence of 40 great men in Damascus. When you say great men, we don't mean they're all, there's this kind of um, special palace for them or something like this. These are 40 men that are hidden, only known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who these, and you can just speculate that this is one of the 40. That's why if anybody has traveled to Damascus, and inshallah, hopefully will get an opportunity to travel to Damascus again, inshallah, in the future, 
right? Once uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about some relief there. If you go to Mount Qasiyun, there's a masjid there, and it says that this is, uh, they've made 40, member, uh, 40 kind of arches down there. And it said, you know, this is just kind of a symbolic kind of thing of reminding people that this is the place of these blessed individuals. Now, what the hadith mentions is that they are people that Allah sends rain because of them. Allah loves them so much. Like some of the pious of the most pious people in Sham. And you saw that light when you're in Damascus. Because as I said, the masajid were filled. There was a general piety on the streets. Even in discussion in general, there'd be a lot of discussion, a lot of du'as that are given to one another. It's just a general piety. Anyway, not to say there's not any bad. This is the world. There's going to be bad. But when there's a lot of goodness somewhere, where there's scope for learning, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Anyway, most scholars have affirmed the in existence, including some of the great names like Ibn Salah, Allama Ibn Abid Dunya, Ibn Asakir, Allama Zar uh, Zarqashi, Allama Sakhawi, uh, Suyuti, Qastallani, Ibn Abidin al-Shami, and so on and so forth. It talks about these great individuals. Now you have to remember, just because a place is going through good times, doesn't mean that it's a blessed place. And a place that's going through persecution is a bad place. It doesn't have to be like that. Because the responsibility of a believer in this world is sabr and shukr. And sometimes through sabr, sabr is definitely superior to shukr in general. Because the deen is mostly sabr. Our, all of our good deeds that we do, coming fajr, etc, etc, that's all sabr ala ta'a. Abstaining from harams in the face of attraction is all sabr because that's called sabr anil ma'siyah to persevere and be patient in not doing the haram and calamities so sabr is fasting is sabr and that's why fasting has some of the greater, greatest rewards Allah says وَبَشِّرِ الصَّابِرِينَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَتُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ أُولَٰئِكَ عَلَيْهِمْ صَلَوَاتٌ مِّن رَبِّهِمْ وَرَحْمَةٌ وَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُهْتَدُونَ so sabr so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may want to elevate their status Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to sift out all the evil from there and so on and so forth. There could be many, many reasons. But again, Damascus is going to play, play a very big role afterwards, towards the end of times. Now, let me just go through some of the virtues of Jerusalem, which are probably more well known to people anyway. Because you generally hear more about Jerusalem than you hear about Sham and, and, and uh, Damascus. So there's some very clear-cut hadith about Jerusalem because it has a very special position. First and foremost, Jerusalem remained the Qibla for the Muslimin while in Makkah Mukarramah and then for about 16 or 17 months after moving to Medina Munawwara as well. Only after that was it changed. So while in Makkah the Qibla was Jerusalem but you could actually pray towards Jerusalem while facing the Kaaba, so you could get both, as the Prophet used to do. But when he came to Medina Munawwara, you had a choice. You couldn't pray in both directions anymore. The reason is that Makkah is here, Medina is above, and Jerusalem is in the northern direction to that. So if you pray towards Makkah, you can't pray towards Jerusalem. And the hukum, the command is pray towards Jerusalem. Now the Prophet couldn't pray to both. So he's waiting, waiting. He has this hope in him that it's going to change and finally it changed. That's why you have the Masjid al-Qiblatayn. Now there's another hadith that's related by Imam Bukhari from Abu Dharr radiallahu an. قَالَ قُلْتُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ أَيُّ مَسْجِدٍ وُضِعَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَوَّلًا Which was the first masjid to be established on this earth? قَالَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ مَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ قَالَ قُلْتُ ثُمَّ أَيْ Then which one? So Masjid Al-Aqsa is before Medina Munawwara, clearly. This was uh, early on. He really wanted to get the specifics. He says, how long was it between the two? And then he said, only 40 years. So they say that the Kaaba was originally, Masjid Al-Haram was originally established by the angels in the world, right in the beginning. In fact, there's narrations that Kaaba lies in the place from where the earth was spread and became round. Kaaba lies in the heart of the world. And if you look at a map, you know, if you look at a map, you'll actually see that Arabia, Kaaba is in the center. You know, whether you look at it upside down or the right way around, it's 
it's just about in the center, in that sense. And so there are narrations which say that the earth was spread from there, from what was uh, from that area, it was spread from there. However, the Prophet ﷺ did say, that wherever after that wherever you find a place to pray you can pray so the prophet ﷺ goes for his ascension from the first masjid to the second masjid then up to the heavens this was before the migra- this ascension took before migration before medina munawwara then there's another hadith that imam bukhari relates awf ibn malik radiyallahu anhu says I came to the Prophet ﷺ during the expedition of Tabuk. He was in a tent made of leather. I went to the Prophet ﷺ and I said, and he said to me, remember, of, he says, count these six things. Keep these six things in mind, they will happen before the, before the Day of Judgment. Mauti. The first one was my death. It will occur. Thumma fathu Baytul Maqdis. Then after that, Baytul Maqdis will be conquered. So that was mentioned before the conquest, and then after that, it was it was conquered. The most prominent thing here is this: if I live in, if you live in this area, right? If I, if you live in this area. And you've got this masjid. Do you have a bigger masjid in town? Or is this the biggest masjid? There's a bigger one, right? The big one, the jami. Okay. So now if somebody thinks this is a small masjid, I get more reward for going to that big masjid, then you're wrong. You get more, most reward in your local because that's your local, that's where your right is. That's what you have to uh, frequent and inhabit. However, if you say, for example, I'm going to go to Dewsbury and I'll get more reward for praying Salat there. You're also wrong. Yeah, you can go to Dewsbury for the Markas and for the Tabligh and for all that work. Or you can go to Regent's Park Mosque just to, you know, look at it if you want, right? But if you say, I want to pray in Regent's Park because I get more reward there. Or I'm going to pray in the White Chapel Mosque because I get more reward there, then you don't. You don't get reward in any masjid more than you get in other masjid unless there's a difference of um, other factors. Other factors being more people, more of a chance of somebody's salat being accepted. More righteous people, so then you've got a more chance of your prayer being uh, uh, accepted. There's those things. But generally you're not supposed to kind of overcome your masjid and go somewhere else. However, there are three masajid in the world where you can actually take a journey, a proper journey to go there. And you will be rewarded for that entire journey. That's Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabawi, and Masjid al-Aqsa. So you will actually be rewarded for going there if you go for the right purposes. You will go there, whatever money you pay. That, that is because the Prophet ﷺ says in this hadith, لا تشد الرحال إلا إلى ثلاثة مساجد You should not get your traveling gear together, rihal, like get, get your animal and everything set up to go somewhere. Like take an undertaker travel or a journey, it should not be done except for three masajid. Because there's virtue for those three masjid, you get extra reward there, I'll mention the rewards, but you'll get special masjid there. Um, masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Aqsa, and this masjid of mine. So you, you're rewarded for going to Jerusalem, to pray in the masjid, for every salat that you go there, specifically with that intention. Abdullah ibn Amr radiallahu anhu relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said لَمَّا فَرَغَ سُلَيْمَانُ مِنْ دَاوُدَ مِنْ بِنَاءِ بَيْتِ الْمَقْدِسِ When Sulaiman alayhi salam, Sulaiman ibn Dawood completed building the Masjid al-Aqsa, Baytul Maqdis, Baytul Maqdis, the house of holiness, the house of sanctity, that's kind of the translation. He asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala thrice, sorry, he asked Allah for three things. One was hukman. One was a power. Number two, sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty like nobody ever to come after him. Right. And number three, which is 
what is appropriate for us. It's just not a historical point of view, but it's something that is still ongoing and inshallah it still stands. Is لا يأتي هذا المسجد أحد لا يريد إلا الصلاة فيه إلا خرج من ذنوبه كيوم ولدته أمه. Now this is not a well-known hadith generally. This is the du'a of Sulaiman alayhi salam. The third of his du'a, two of them were definitely accepted and this one we can only know in the hereafter if it's accepted or not. Anybody who comes to this masjid only to perform salat in it, then he will shed his sins like the day his mother gave him birth. So that is a reward. To go purely for that sake. I want to go there, just want to pray in that masjid. Then you'll get that reward inshallah. And finally, towards the end of times again, everything goes into that direction, right? It relates from Maymuna bintu Sa'd, one of the uh, one of the female servants of the Prophet ﷺ. She said, "Ya Nabi Allah, aftina fi Baytul Maqdis. Tell us something about Baytul Maqdis. Give us some ruling about Baytul Maqdis." He said, "Ardul Mahshari wal Manshar. This is the place where the gathering will take place. This is the place uh, where these events of the Day of Judgment are going to take place." So it holds greater prominence uh, in, in that regard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to end here by just saying for ourselves that, of course, that these lands are going through great turmoil in these times. They, this is not the first time. Damascus has undergone probably worse than this. When the Tatars invaded, just as Baghdad has undergone worse, Damascus itself, when it was overcome by the Tatars, the Christians took over the masjid and pork was being served. Wine was being sprinkled in the masjids. Because the Tatars were in alliance with the Christians of the city at the time. Right? So after all of that, it still come back. Jerusalem itself, after being out of our hands for over 90 years, when no... Salat was performed. No Salat was performed in that masjid. For 90 years, no Imam stood in the mihrab, on the pulpit. No Quran was recited. And that masjid Qubbatul Sahra was made into a temple, uh, uh, a cathedral, Templum Domini, cross was, golden cross was on the top. Right? And then Masjid Laqsa was made like into a museum and next door stables. But Alhamdulillah, it came back. So let us not feel that these are the end of times. You don't get anything out of feeling that it's the end of times. Let me tell that to you. Because it'll only get worse. The challenges will only get greater. And a lot of people are very interested in the end of times. They get really excited about all of these end of time prophecies. They're wasting their time. Believe me, I'd rather not be at the end of times. Because the challenge will only get worse. I don't want a challenge in my I want well-being. I want afi. I want it to be simple. And we leave from this world in a simple state, not in a, because it's not easy. Because just for example, if you take Dajjal, the Prophet ﷺ said that he's the worst of the unseen fitnas. Now just imagine any fitna that we have today. What is your fitna? For men generally, it's women. You know, the whole desire aspect of it, how difficult is it to deal with that? You know, for women, it's something else, whatever it may be, you know, shopping or whatever the case is. Wallahu right? alam, you know. Just think of the worst thing that you have trouble with. And if Dajjal is supposed to be worse than that, you know, the whole Dajjalic system, then I don't want to be there. I'd rather go earlier. You know, I'd rather be closer to time Rasulullah in that sense. So it doesn't have to be the end of time because we've seen worse than this, both in Damascus, in Baghdad, in Jerusalem. Alhamdulillah, Medina Munawwara we've seen worse as well. Do you know that in Medina Munawwara there were s several days that passed when the Salah did not take place? The Adhan did not happen officially? Sa uh, there was, uh, what is it, Sa'id al-Musayyib? Was in the masjid alone when the fitna of Hajjaj and there was a massive uh, rebellion that took place and problems. No Salah took place in the masjid. And he would hear, uh, Sayyid al-Musayyib stayed in the masjid. He heard adhan coming from the grave of Rasulullah So Medina has fared worse. Medina Munawar has fared worse. 
Likewise, Makkah Mukarrah, the black stone was removed. The black stone was removed. For over two years, there was no black stone there. That's why it was broken. That's why today the black stone is not a full stone. It's actually just pieces. If you get a chance, it's only pieces, about seven pieces or something. The remnants of what's left. So we've seen it all. This is not new times. Don't think this is the worst of times. The main thing that's important for us is that we remember Allah and we die on our faith. Because that's what the Prophet ﷺ told us. He said that fitna will come to you. One will make the other one look simple and small. يُرَقِّكُ بَعْضُهَا بَعْضًا Fitna will come and each one will make the other one seem insignificant. It says that a fitna will come and a person will think هَذِهِ مَهْلَكَتِي this is, this is it. I'm dead in this one. Thummatan kashif. But it will be removed. And then another, taji'u ukhra, uh, another one will come, and a person will think, now I'm dead. And then again it will be removed. So, but the, but the Prophet ﷺ, what he does say at the end of it is, you make sure that you meet Allah, you meet Allah with Iman. That's the most important thing for us. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us. وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين